When we pave our own way and begin creating the life we've always wanted, we never think that in the blink of an eye it can be taken away. But for Inez Ribostello, a former employee at Windows on the World at the World Trade Center in New York, narrowly missing 9-11 caused her to start over, question her faith, and find the strength to share her story with the world. You're listening to We Need to Talk. So you Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. I am your host, Melinda Hale. Joining me today is restaurant owner and author Inez Rubistello. Inez recently released her memoir, Life After Windows, chronicling her journey before and after 9-11 and how she rebuilt her life. Inez, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It is an, it's truly an honor. Oh, thank you. You know, I knew when I started this new season of We Need to Talk that I wanted my focus in January to be about starting over and new beginnings. And, you know, the past two years, everyone's been submerged into this pandemic and so many people have had to start over and have new beginnings. And while it's been a a hardship for a lot of people, it has been a blessing for some. And I definitely am one of those people because it kind of felt like you had to push yourself to do the thing that you never thought you were going to do, but now you kind of had to. And I don't, I don't think that aspect of starting over is really talked enough about or the journey of even getting there and how something beautiful can be birthed out of hardship. And I know you and your story are truly a testament to that, having worked in the food and wine industry in New York when 9-11 hit. And you were essentially forced to start over and create sort of a new life and a new path for yourself. But before we even get to the core of your story, being in the food and wine industry, I know it's something that you're very clearly passionate about. And you're originally from North Carolina, which I know is where you reside now. And I've been to North Carolina and it's a beautiful state, but I wouldn't really view it as a culinary hub. (laughs) So where did that passion derive from and how did New York become your home base for you to grow your career? Sure. So I was a journalism major uh, at Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I um, went up to D.C. the summer after my sophomore year in college to intern at the United States Information Agency, and it was a uh, um, an unpaid internship. And so I knew I couldn't afford to live somewhere where rent was, you know, required. Mm-hmm. So my dad had a cousin who lived in DC and she and her husband and um, young daughter said I could stay in their little pullout couch guest bedroom. Um, and then, you know, in return, would I cook? And I did not grow up with a mother or a stepmother who cooked. I mean, mm-hmm. we ate out fast food a lot. Um, a lot of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup as a base for whatever binder. Um, and so wasn't um, familiar with, you know, real, real cooking and certainly not fine dining cooking. Um, and she handed me the, the cookbook, The Joy of Cooking, and let me go to these grocery stores in Washington, D.C. that looked very different than the ones in eastern North Carolina. <laughs> and um, I was hooked. And so I came home and I said to my dad, I don't want to go back to Carolina. I want to go she had told me about culinary school. I'd I'd never even heard the word culinary. Um, And so my dad said, let's get this straight. 
you are not dropping out of school. Um, you're going to go and work in a professional kitchen the next summer and see, you know, he's like cooking at home is really different than cooking in a restaurant. I don't know how he knew that, but um, he was, <laughs> it's right. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I went back and, um, well, I went back to school and then I came home and cooked in Tarboro's finest dining restaurant, which was a, a steakhouse um, that served Chablis out of a box. And, um, but the chef had attended culinary school. I, I think it was Johnson and Wales in Rhode Island or maybe mm -hmm. Charleston, but um, he took me under his wing and it was really hard. And, you know, it's um, a lot of monotonous cutting and, and, you know, certainly was I not qualified to work the line, but, you know, I did all the, the mirror, um, the mise en place and, mm -hmm. and, and I did it and said, yeah, you know, I, I want to do that. And so um, I had never been North of the Mason Dixon line. And, wow. um, uh, I knew I wanted to go to a school that wasn't, um, a two-year program. So I didn't want to invest the time or the money into like a CIA. And so we found one in, in New York city. Um, and it happened to be where the guy I was dating at the time was moving up also. Mm. So, you know, both those and, um, yeah, so moved up to New York city in July of 98 and, um, started culinary school and it wasn't uh too long after that that I um got a job at a little wine store um uh right at the subway station of where I would get off to go to culinary school wow. and so um started selling wine and, and realized I like to drink more than I like to cook uh, <laughs> and, and again you know I'm from a town in eastern North Carolina of about 11,000 people no one had said there were careers in wine um mm. Certainly, you know, when people think of restaurants in Eastern North Carolina, they think of like, you know, just country cooking where yeah, the yeah. servers call you sugar and honey and, and, and no wine or beer um, or, 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 or alcohol in general. But yeah. Um, yeah, now I was hitting this whole new world where like, not only was I in love with it, but I was seeing that you could, you could be, you know, successful. Absolutely. And you were, I mean, your career <laughs> advanced very quickly. I mean, you were a, an assistant seller master, then you promoted to beverage director. And so for those who don't know, can you kind of paint the picture of what those specific occupations do on a day-to-day -day and why those positions felt right for you at that time? Sure. So um, assistant seller master really translates to minimum wage paid box maker. Um, and, <laughs> but, but the return on that job is, as certainly at Windows, you were touching wines that many collectors could not get their hands on wow. every single day. Yeah, and you yeah. were learning pronunciations. And, and I was able to attend um, the American Sommelier Association's class for free, Kevin Zarelli's Windows on the World Wine class for free. So there are a lot of perks, not to mention if I worked night service, which I, I did all the time, the captains, if they liked you uh, and the sommeliers would bring you back sips every bottle of wine that was mm. opened at windows was opened on a garadon away from the table mm. where the the captain or the sommelier poured a very small sip probably about a half an ounce to nose to make sure that the bottle was not corked or that the bottle had not turned or you know to make sure that the guest was getting the, the best possible experience of that wine and and so the captains would bring back to the cellar a little taste of you know 1945 Margot. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, it was just quite this um, incredible uh, gift. Yeah, that it's like getting a little piece of history. 
Almost. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and assistant seller masters, while they were, you know, at the bottom of the totem pole for the, the wine department, uh, it was my favorite job I ever had. Mm. Um, and, and we were quite essential. You know, we were the, we were the, the um, vehicles for the wine to get from the basement, which was where the, the bulk of the wine was stored up until the 107th floor ready for service. And, you know, the organization and the inventory. And um, so, yeah, I, I was um, in love with that and, yeah. and had never done anything like that in my life. Um, and all of a sudden felt really, um, confident. Of course, that I was, of course. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, so then when were you promoted to beverage director? I was promoted in January of 2001. Mm. So, um, I started in, in March of 99 and eventually moved up the ladder. Um, and, and in January when they, they gave me the title, I was promoted to beverage manager in, um, June of 2000. And, right when they promoted me, the beverage director resigned. And so essentially I did the beverage director positions for the, the latter part of the year 2000, but I wasn't given the title until January 31. Wonderful. That's wonderful. So you came <laughs> from this small town in North Carolina, didn't know anything outside <laughs> of that state. And you, you moved to New York, which I'm sure was probably a culture shock with how, mm-hmm. it, how fast it was and how many people were. But when you got there, when did it start to feel like home? And did you envision yourself being there for the long haul? You know, it felt like home from the minute I stepped out onto the street. Mm. I I was transformed. I had never uh, been in, in a city like that. And I found it very freeing. Mm. Um, and I grew up with a lot of family. You know, my, my parents divorced really early on and um, they both remarried. And so I had, you know, lots of parents, lots of grandparents, lots of aunts and uncles. And, and I was kind of kept under their fingers. You know, everybody always knew where I was and, and always had an opinion on what I was doing. And all yeah. of a sudden there was, there's no way to get in touch with me. They, they could, they're just like, good luck. It was um, your own state. It was your own home. Yeah, it yeah. was. And, um, I, um, fortunately, you know, Windows on the World was a big family. And those people that I worked with were also the people who I went out to dinner with, who I went to lunch with, who, you know, in my free time, um, I mean, I I had great roommates also, but I was very, very, um, you know, active with my Windows community outside of work. Yeah, yeah. So you've begun to build this career for yourself and the 9-11 hits. Yeah. September 11, 2001. And you didn't go into work that day. And you yeah. worked in the World Trade Center. And so many of us talk about exactly where we were at that moment and what we were doing. And I think it's something that collectively the nation will never forget. So do you remember that moment for yourself? Oh, I mean, like, like it happened five minutes ago. I um, had gone home to be the maid of honor at my sister's wedding on September 8th. And because uh, I am from a blended family, if I ever had time with my dad, I also would have to have equal time with my mother. And so um, I had lined up to go spend September 9th and 10th and 11th with her and was flying home the morning of September 12th. And so I was um, in a bedroom uh, in the mountains with my mother and her friends and um, she woke me up and she was crying. Mm. And I thought it was my grandmother. 
because as you can imagine, uh, no one would have uh, uh, believed that what was happening was happening. It wouldn't even been on a list of things that could happen on a given day. Absolutely. Right. Not at all. And um, she couldn't speak. And she said, just come watch the television. And at that point, only the North Tower had been hit. And, you know, again, very naive. I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to take forever to clean up. You know, Mm. I won't get this office back. Not even thinking, is anybody okay? Um, And then the second plane hit. And that's when there was a trigger on this, something really bad's happening. Yeah. And so I started calling um, my office so I could get in touch with um, the gentleman who was working for me. And it was just busy signal, busy signal, busy signal. And and I'm trying to call my boyfriend who also worked at Windows, who was in Jersey City. Uh, Yeah, Jersey City. He's not answering. It's just ringing, going straight to his voicemail. At this point, all the lines are just a nightmare. And um, I eventually called my old coworker who had left Windows, but she and I were still really good friends. And she was on the upper, she lived on the Upper West Side and she answered and she was crying. And I thought, why are you crying? I think that's when I was like, and then, um, you know, from there, the, the towers started imploding. And I think, um, well, I know now I just went into a state of shock and eventually, I, I, well, not eventually, I think I said, I need to go home right now. And my mother and my sister got me in the car and um, we drove, we were four hours away from home. We were in the mountains. And I remember um, my mother putting on NPR, trying, you know, again, this wasn't the land of cell phones, you know, right, right. Um, I had a pager for windows. And so, um, you know, my pager was going off like crazy with numbers for me to call, but I didn't have a way to call him. I was in the car. And I remember at some point just saying, my mom, I can't just please turn it off. And, um, she did. And, uh, we eventually got to my grandmother's house and my dad and stepmom were there. They were waiting for me and everybody was just so, um, I, I say this and, and I don't, I'm not proud of this, but my family has always been kind of a suck it up buttercup, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, we're too fortunate. We have so much, we can never be sad. We have to always look at the bright side. And, um, on that day, no one could hide mm. their emotions. And I was seeing this family who had taught me something very different, um, being very afraid and very sad. And that was just really, um, it's a little bit traumatizing, you know? Yeah. You recently released your memoir, Life After Windows, and it's a memoir that was 20 years in the making, truly. What did it feel like having to put your feelings and your thoughts about your life changing onto paper? It felt rewarding in that I had, been telling myself I wanted to do it and damn it I finally did it yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, but it also there was a lot of therapy and healing um getting the words on paper the words were there um because I you know I'd been journaling even before 9-11 um 
And I had said, you know, literally on September 12, 2001, I found a new journal and wrote on it LAW because I was a different person and will never be the same person I was before September 11th. Yeah. I, mean, I miss that person a lot. Um, and I mourn, I mourn her loss, but, um, I, again, you know, rebuilding is, um, about losing something normally. Absolutely. So, um, the healing came with, with getting the words on paper, but it also came after the book went out there because the people who reached to out to me, yeah, and, and the stories that have been shared that I don't even feel worthy of, of hearing, um, there's been a lot of healing in that. Um, yeah. And it's interesting to look back from, from your perspective, I'm sure, and think, you know, and feel lucky. You probably almost feel a sense of guilt, you know? I can only imagine because I, I I know a few other people that that um, had family members or friends that worked near or around the World Trade Center at that time, and they also missed it narrowly. And there is this sense of guilt, but I think we have to remember that we're where we're supposed to be when we're there, you know. So you weren't supposed to be there at that time, and I think there is a reason. And I think that you writing this memoir, it's meant to be shared with the world now, you know, even though it took 20 years, but it was supposed to take 20 years, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's, that's the beautiful thing about it. Have you been back to New York since leaving and moving back home? And how did you feel the city did in terms of memorializing those who lost their lives? Yeah. I mean, New York city just makes me so proud in all the ways. Um, so I went back up and, um, to New York after, you know, and, and probably a week after 9-11 and mm. we started um I was adamant that we had to get jobs in the city and that we were you know um needed to be a part of the um of the of the build back and it was just so painful uh I got a job that was not the windows family that I so so deeply needed and um we lasted I think six months um mm. and my family was begging me to come back and so um we, we we didn't last in in that sense but it's my favorite place after Tarboro and I've gone back um annually if not twice a year and I'm just in awe of how resilient that city is um Absolutely. in particular the people in the restaurant and the hospitality industry and mm -hmm. um I will share with you because I try not to get emotional because I'm I'm a sobber <laughs> and fine. once I start I can't stop <laughs> oh, it's uh, um, but as of this past Tuesday my daughter was accepted into Columbia early decision oh, wow. and so Thank she will guys. go in the fall and and she had written on one of her essays on, you know, the connection she felt to New York. She, she wasn't born there. Um, she was born here, but we always took her back and, and, and she loves it. Like I did. I mean, mm. she really, is. my husband says you can have it. He's from the, he's from up there. So he's like, forget it. But. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, we, um, I'm so excited 
that I'm going to get to start going fairly regularly um, just to, to see what what the city does for her. Yeah, and see it through her eyes and her experiences. That'll be really special. That'll be really yeah. special. So you chose to move back home. Why did you think that that was the right move for you? And I know you had mentioned your family begging you to come back. Was it really more family or were there other reasons why you felt you needed to be home after trying to survive and live in New York again after 9-11? So I really resisted coming home. <laughs> um, I thought I am too big for this. Uh, and um, my father was dying for me to get home. And my grandmother, who's my namesake, who's my best friend, um, you know, she never made me feel guilty for being away. She supported and encouraged me doing things. But there was a point where I was like, I don't want her to go and me not to have, you know, some really meaningful time as an adult with her. Yeah. Um, really the thing. So, so when Steven and I opened on the square in Tarboro in um, October of 02, we did that together for about five months before I got a job um, in Atlantic city, opening up a casino. So I left the day after our wedding and moved back up north and left him in Tarboro, my hometown with my crazy family, <laughs> um, and and was doing you know what I like to be doing. Although Atlantic City is a lot different than New York, yeah. <laughs> um, until I got pregnant with Cynthia. So really, the thing that 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 got me to go back and to stay back was that all of a sudden I was going to become a mom and there was no way, you know, I would be doing right by her living eight hours apart from my husband. And right. so that's what ultimately settled me. And, you know, just like you said earlier, it, I am where I was meant to be. You know, there's a reason Absolutely. I'm back in Tarboro. Absolutely. And kind of going into that feeling of knowing you are where you're supposed to be, I know you talked a little bit about your faith as well. And I know when situations like this happen with 9-11 or there's death in any way, shape or form, or even this pandemic, a lot of people's faith gets put to test. And I can only imagine that be, as being a person of faith myself, and I have that understanding how hard it must have been for you. And I know you struggled with your faith during that time. So what were your conversations with God like following 9-11? Yeah, so <laughs> for a, about a year, two years, I did not speak to God. Mm -hmm. I told God, I am so angry at you that I'm not speaking to you. <laughs> I'm sure that really showed him or her. Um, <laughs> but I really, I, and I, I, I've said this before, I think, well, actually, I don't think I know. I grew up with what I like to call country club Christianity. <laughs> like there was no reason not to believe, right? I mean, I mm -hmm. had... I had everything. Um, I mean, my parents got divorced when I was young, but you know, still I, um, grew up, both my uncles were Presbyterian ministers, my dad heavily involved in our church. And so, um, I just had this faith because I learned it and I, yeah. I, I, I agreed with love your neighbor as yourself and love your God with all your heart. And uh, all of a sudden this, 
world that I dearly loved and this person that I dearly loved were taken away, you know, my, my before self and all my friends and, you know, everything. And so I was so angry. And, um, I remember as part of our marriage counseling, we had to go, or or as part of our wedding, we had to go to marriage counseling. Mm -hmm. And my uncle, um, said, you know, Annie, what's my friends call me Annie. Um, they said, what's, what's happening between you and God right now? And I was scared to tell him, but I said, you know, I'm not talking to God. I am really angry at God. And he said, you know, that's okay because you cannot be angry at something you don't believe in. And I was like, oh yeah. And then he said, people can't experience God's grace until they experience true pain Mm. because you can't have the, the healing and the coming home. Right. And he was so right because really, you know, years later, so my daughter was born on September 12th, 2004. And I, um, I knew then, like I wanted to bring her up in our, in our church. And and I wanted to give her the foundation that I feel like, I I mean, if I hadn't had the foundation that I had, I don't know what 9-11 would have looked like, Mm. you know? And so, um, I just, I guess it was around 2006, I had this homecoming and it was the most beautiful experience, um, where I felt closer to God than I have ever felt. Now, since then, I mean, I do believe that faith is ever changing. You know, my my faith looks so different than it did in 2006 and seven and 2012. I mean, it's, it's a growing, evolving faith um, where, and, and a learning, a learning faith. And so it's interesting because I've had people reach out to me um, after they read the book and they've said, it, it sounds like your faith got rocked again. Do you, you know, do you believe in God? Yes, I do believe, but I mean, my belief may not look like the person next to me and that's sure. okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Did I answer that? For you absolutely did. <laughs> okay. Beautiful answer. But I was going to say, it's a different experience for everybody and everybody's faith journey is very, very personal. Very Extremely personal. personal. Yes. Uh, Amen. (laughs) (laughs) And we're not here to judge anybody's personal experience. Correct. 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 So every, and I, as I mentioned before, but everything that you went through, every place that you were at, that was a part of your journey and your blueprint that God had laid out. So I know you talked a little bit about the person that you memorialize within yourself, but what do you think the biggest difference about who you are today than from 20 years ago is? You know, 20 years ago, I don't think um, the person had any fear. (laughs) And so she was carefree and always in for like the best time because consequences didn't seem, um, you know, they they weren't even on on her radar. Um, And I do think the change also comes with age, but I don't think that would have happened to me at 25. Right. I think maybe I would have had to be 30 or, you know, be mother, but, um, now I don't, I don't live in fear, Mm -hmm. but, um, 
I live in reality. Mm. I don't think I was living in reality. Mm. And, um, and my, my parents would have said that I was a hedonist at the time, which I was like, what's wrong with that? Who doesn't want a good time? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that person just was so um, naive, but like in a way that we all kind of, you know, like in a childlike way, we we're like, oh, that person is just living in innocence. Yeah. But, and, and assuming the best of everyone, yes. you know, yeah. like loving yeah. everything, loving mm-hmm. everyone and not knowing that evil was out there in that way. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, Columbine had happened and that was terrible. The Oklahoma city bombing had happened. That was terrible. Um, the middle East war had happened. That was terrible. But for me, like nothing had hit that close to home. Right. No, and now I'm, you know, 10 hours away from Sandy Hook and I sob like a baby. I mean, my friend's son is killed in a car accident and I can't get out of bed. Mm. Like I'm so aware. Yeah. Hyper aware of like that loss is so close at any given moment. And unfortunately it's inevitable as well. You know, so it's just figuring out how to adapt and grow through it and heal because, you know, it's going to happen at some point in your life, but it's just figuring out how to make sure you have the tools to get through it, which you did. And you you wrote your book. And I think that that was a way for you to heal no matter how long it took. But for you, aside from writing the book, you know, how do you move through any of the, the dark memories from the past and how do you appreciate where life has, has taken you at this point? Writing it has definitely been a part of it, but um, also there's a prayer slash meditation slash um, remembering that I, that I do, um, quite frequently. And I, um, I have a very good friend whose husband, or I'm sorry, whose boyfriend was killed in 9-11. He worked in my department and, um, we, we did not meet until his funeral, but we've become very dear friends. And, mm. and, and I think of that relationship as, you know, a, a, a huge gift to me. Um, I can talk to her a lot and just have this um, sense of peace because I there's a connection there that I, I don't have with really anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think between writing and prayer and meditation and just this, this very um, special friendship, um, that's, a, that's a part of, um, I guess, the growth. And, and honestly, sharing with my children, Mm. you know, when they are in, when they are hurting, you know, listening and um, not actually doing what my parents did, which was, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. We're great. We're great. We're all good. (laughs) Acknowledge Um, the feelings and talk about it. Right. Acknowledge that the pain is there and it is, and it, and it doesn't 
have a timeline in terms of when it's going to go away. Mm. <laughs> um, and so just letting them know that, you know, this, this experience, while it is truly heartbreaking and painful, it's going to be a part of their story too. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful words. Inez, thank you so much for sharing your story. And can you let everyone know where they can get your book, Life After Windows? Well, I highly encourage you to ask your small, independent, local bookstore uh, so that they can get the the sale. But you can buy it on other places too that will that, that I will not name. Yes, yeah, support um, small businesses. I'm all about that. So. Yes, yes, yes. But Life After Windows by Inez Rubastello. Inez, thank you so much. You are such a beautiful spirit. I really appreciate you. This has been the best. Thank you so much. And to the listeners, thank you for your weekly support of We Need to Talk. Please make sure you like, share, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're on Facebook, feel free to join the We Need to Talk discussion group as well. Thank you to Stephen James, our theme songwriter and producer, and we'll talk to you again next week. Remember, everything starts with the conversation. We need to talk.